Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Welcome it's our to dirty laundry. our podcast. I'm Katie. I'm Mandy. We are and your. This is our dirty laundry. <laughs> your co-hosts into horrible, awful, hard histories to learn about. But you come because you know it's important, and they're fascinating, and they help us understand our world today. They inspire us to take actions that help make the world a better place. At least that's our hope. <clears throat> that's what we hope. And we are currently, if everyone has been listening. Um, in the middle of talking about eugenics, but mm-hmm. we are taking a little break from that this week to have back one of our favorite people. I know. Yay. I love we- talking to Kate Schott so much and just picking her brain about the white women who did not fall prey to all of the horrible stuff that so many others did. And and we are in the middle of eugenics, but before that, we talked a lot about white women's involvement in slavery. And today we're going to learn about Lucretia Mott, who reminds us that all of these issues are connected anyway, and is kind of a bridge woman between a lot of issues we've talked about suffrage from our first season, slavery from the last chapter, eugenics, even there are connections. She kind of, I don't know, she sort of cuts across all of them in a way. Yeah. She was just all around badass in every area that you could be progressive (laughs) in. She was doing it. So that is who we're talking about today with Kate Schott. She's going to teach us more about her and we hope that you have fun listening to this one. Take a little break from eugenics. We will be back next week to get back into the horrors. And don't, (laughs) don't forget to subscribe if you're not subscribed and to like it. Our, yep. and it, by it, I mean our podcast that that <laughs> helps get it um, moved up in the algorithm and helps people find out about us and yeah. share, share with people yeah, that you think need sure. to know. Okay. Great. Just always a reminder. I think we always, we forget. We just sort of assume. I know we're not good self-promoters. <laughs> Which is good. We're <laughs> fine with that. That's good. But I, I mean, we should, I, we do really believe in this, in these histories being really important to learn. And so we appreciate the people who are listening and and everyone who's shared, we just thank you so much and yeah. keep doing it. Hope you enjoy our conversation with Kate. Hey, everybody. We are here for an interview day. Well, kind of an interview, more of our like <laughs> running series we're going to do because we've committed Kate to that. So we have, <laughs> we're going to badger her forever. Now we have Kate Schatz with us again, and we're going to talk about white women that didn't suck for a little bit. <laughs> a, a refreshing. We've kind of been a downer for weeks oh, and weeks and weeks so and weeks. It's down. been so rough. It, we need a palate <laughs> cleanser because we've been learning about eugenics and it yeah. is hard and dark and horrible and not gone and just no. really, really, really hard to learn about. So, yeah, learning about a white woman who we can maybe be inspired by instead of like horrified and disgusted, then that would be great. Just a little, little breather here. I like, I like, I like the spinoff podcast, the white women who didn't suck. (laughs) I know it's a much shorter podcast, honestly, but that's okay. (laughs) We're trying to expand it. That's the purpose of Mm -hmm. all of this. (laughs) 
yeah, we're excited today to talk about who are we talking about? Yeah, what did we decide? Um, we're talking about Lucretia Mott, who oh, yeah. I really like. Probably, if I have to like rank uh, the white women <laughs> in history, um, she's probably my number one. Actually. Wow, oh, that's impressive. By the way, I wow. just imagined like a tournament bracket style competition <laughs> where we we just like see who comes out on top. But that's exciting. I don't know very much at all about Lucretia Mott. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I will say actually, she's. I'm just remembering that I actually almost named my child after her. Like Lucretia wow. was on my list of names, um, um, and then I decided it just felt way too old timey. Like, <laughs> I could call her Lou or Lulu, but it'd be Lucretia anyway. That, that's how yeah. much I like Lucretia Mott. Wow, that's exciting! Yeah, Lucretia I mean, does feel like a kind of heavy name. I'm not gonna lie. Also, her maiden her maiden name, her original last name was Coffin. Whoa. Um, oh. <laughs> it was Lucretia Coffin um, until she married Mr. Mott. Um, but I think uh-huh. it's such a hard point. Lucretia Coffin Mott. Yeah, that's a that's a heavy name. She's <laughs> <laughs> not fucking around, uh, not with her name and not with her politics. Yeah, well, that's what we like. So we like to hear. I think like the minimal I remember about Lucretia is that she was early involved in the like suffrage and abolitionist movement. Mm. But then as far as what we learn going forward with that, she kind of drops off. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like the pattern mm-hmm. when there's women who don't suck, then they <laughs> kind of get silenced in history because the troublemakers take over and then they rewrite things. And then like Susan B burns everything. And <laughs> we don't have yeah. histories. So actually that's an interesting thing about Lucretia Mott and, and there's, I think one of the best books about her that if readers end up being excited and inspired to learn more about her after listening, there's a book mm-hmm. called um, uh, Lucretia Mott's Heresy or the Heresy of Lucretia Mott, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, it has the word heresy in the title. Um, and it's by Carol Faulkner, who's a women's studies professor. And it's an a really academic title, but it's um, really readable as a biography. And part of the argument that she makes is that one of the reasons that Lucretia Mott isn't as well known and kind of fell off the radar is that she, for someone who was as, was as well known as she was, um, she didn't leave any, like she didn't leave much of a paper trail. She never mm-hmm. wrote a book. She didn't write pamphlets. So right, right back in the day, a lot of the suffragists and abolitionists would, would publish their work as these pamphlets, like either mm-hmm. essays or these short pamphlets. She never did a single pamphlet. Um, mm. and she didn't, she didn't write a memoir. She didn't write an autobiography. She wasn't really a writer. She was a speaker and she traveled mm. all over and was like known for her speeches, but, but the writing down of it wasn't what she did. So there is not unlike, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the women who did, you know, kind of consecrate their place in history by writing, mm-hmm. writing about it. Um, she didn't. So there's less um, to go on. She there's a lot of letters of hers and that's what the kind of scholars um, have gone on in terms of kind of trying to bring her work back and, and get her to be known again. But it's, it's, that's really cobbling together a lot of documents like that. Cause she didn't, she didn't write. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, and this is back in like what late mid to late 1800s. Late 1800s. Um, she was active. Yeah. So she was really, born. Yeah. So she was born in the 1790s. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Right. So she's like, I guess maybe that's way kind of back. Because she's like, she's legit 18th century born. Um, yeah. And 
Can so you imagine the, the like debates between the, the like parents and kids? Like that's so 18th century. We're the 19th century mom. Get with it. Yeah. So she's like fully born in the 18th century. Um, and she's, she's a radical Quaker. She was born on Nantucket and like born and raised on Nantucket. And, uh, her dad was a sea captain. Um, and then oh gosh, even, her wow. parents, yeah, even her parents were known to be really progressive. And I think that's, and I talked about this before when, when, when I, we talked about Lillian Smith, that yeah. for me, the idea of learning about white women who didn't suck, um, it's not just about making yourself feel better or like, you know, right. palate cleansing all the bad stuff. <laughs> right. For me, one of the most powerful parts about it is that it is also just the reminder that, that it, that there were people who didn't accept the way it was. Cause mm-hmm. that is, mm-hmm. you know, one of the arguments that people always make is that, well, that's just the way it was back then. They were just, mm-hmm. they did in the times they were, that's what, how it was. And people like her are this like powerful reminder that like, no, actually that was not mm-hmm. how everybody did it. Most people went along with it, but um, right. there were really people who were standing up for it. And the Quakers were, you know, the earliest um, and the first in terms of white people in America to be um, resisting um, the institution of slavery. So the parents that she was born into were already known to be um, very anti-slavery and very progressive. And she was educated and um, at a co-ed Quaker school. Mm -hmm. Um, And she became um, a Quaker minister in like 1810, something super like early, early 19th century. She actually um, became a minister and Hmm. And also, like, that there's writing and letters of hers where even um, and she, she, her husband was another Quaker that she met at school, um, where she also was a teacher. And, um, but she, there's, like, early writing from her about, like, even the institution of marriage from, you know, um, that the men and man, woman, husband and wife should always be equal. Um, so really, really early stuff. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that she's, you know, again, notable for being... Um, someone who, and here's the thing, right. With these historic figures and, you know, the ones that we love, like mm. I haven't read every single thing she ever mm. wrote. There could be more, maybe they'll uncover a speech of hers, the lost letter where she says something <laughs> horrible. <laughs> but from like what we can tell, she's someone who was uh, consistently really committed to, um, to women's rights and really committed to the abolitionist movement um, and really to all progressive causes. So she was also, um, she did, did like basically like prison abolition. Like she would go to mm-hmm. prisons and meet with, with people who were incarcerated. Um, she went and met with, uh, with, in, you know, with native American people on their land. And, and like, she was this kind of radical progressive person very, very long ago. I have so many questions. I, I mean, even just starting at the beginning, do you know a little bit more about her childhood or or even just more about Quakers in Nantucket? Like what's their deal? You know what? Yeah. So her, I mean, she always, she like what's known about her childhood. It was that it was really idyllic and that it was really um, specifically. So my understanding of the Quakers in Nantucket at that time is that there was in general, a lot of equality between men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was in part because that was pretty common with the, with American Quakers, but also um, because they were seafaring people, mm-hmm. um, like a lot of the men were, were sea captains or whalers, mm-hmm. then they'd be gone for really, really long stretches of time. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot more common for women to have um, kind of, you know, really important roles that were not just the traditional 
um, domestic roles for women. Um, and also Quaker, like American Quakers from the get go, like women were educated, like of everything I've ever read about, mm. you know, early, early Quakers, women were in school, they were getting educated. So she was educated, um, and, and it was a really tight knit community. Um, and then she, her parents did send her away to like upstate New York to go to a, um, a co-ed Quaker school, but she had mm-hmm. a very like happy childhood. Um, and, and it's like where she got a lot of these ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think, uh, I, as someone who also reads and thinks a lot about history and especially in times like this, you know, when our world is insane and it feels like we're like not making any progress, um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that's that's where the historical perspective always helps me because you think about you know the passage of time, right? So like, she's born in 1791, and it seems amazing to us that she's like writing about um, abolition and, and suffrage in the early 1800s. Mm. Um, and it was a hundred years before she was born that the Germantown anti-slavery petition was written, right? Which is like it was like 1688, and that's the first known document in America to speak out against slavery. And it was uh, written by Quaker men in Germantown, which was like near Philadelphia, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was like a petition um, opposing slavery in 1688, like right when, right when like Virginia slave codes were about to happen when it was really starting its, its expansion. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was a hundred years before she was born. Right. So even though Mm -hmm. we're like, Wow, 1791, like she was still born into a pretty um, solid um, abolitionist movement mm. um, within the Quaker community. Well, and when you See, say this is where I have like mm. the, the glasses half empty perspective, because that's, <laughs> that's, that's me. That's, that's what, what I do around here. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, well, shit, these views were around that long ago, mm. and we still haven't mm. like gotten on board with them. Like, what's what's to say that we're gonna make it work now i'm like Mm. (laughs) it didn't it's been like just suppressed for so long and it's never worked and these other horrible things always take over like it's more somewhat more comforting to me if i thought it was a new idea that people (laughs) would jump on board with but it's like no it's been there and we've just decided not to do it for hundreds Mm. of years now (laughs) i don't know hopefully hopefully now with like more of this kind of format, like the social media, the connection, the ability to write things down and have them recorded Mm -hmm. and pass ideas along. It's just more accessible and more people can know that those thoughts aren't so isolated, but geez, it's depressing that we've chosen wrong so many times along the way. I hear you. And I, I I don't think I'm like, I'm not like a hardcore Pollyanna, but like, (laughs) I do think for me, that kind of perspective is, it's also just like humbling to me in Mm -hmm. in those moments where I feel like, you know, I have the best ideas ever. And like, we are the answer and we're the ones who are going to fix it all. I kind Mm -hmm. of like being a small speck on a long trajectory of, of change and progress. Um, maybe it makes me feel like, (laughs) like it takes some of the weight off of having to fix everything right now. Um, but it also connects, I like being connected to, um, you know, to those, to those trajectories, you know, and it's true. Like, so something like this petition, Mm -hmm. it was written and then disappeared and it wasn't found again for like 200 years. It was discovered in like a, you know, like a box in a church somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then, but when it was found, now I'm on just this like tangent about this petition, but it was found <laughs> we like tangents. It was founded in like, the 1840s or 50s, and when it mm. was found, it was seen as this kind of like 
new, um, it like motivated people even in the 1850s mm, to be like, oh, wow. look, people were doing this before, like, yay. And they kind of like rallied around this petition. So it's, you know. Well, this is, I bring the glass half full. This is the story of our friendship <laughs> since we were 12 years old, that there's <laughs> some air in the glass and some water at the bottom. But mm-hmm. I, to me, another way to look at this exact phenomenon, and Mandy, I get it. Like, I, I also feel discouraged or when you realize we're in a time of like rollback or like regression, it's really frustrating. But another way to think about it is, yeah, those ideas haven't like won the day necessarily, but they've survived. So they haven't been stamped out either. Like the efforts to shut this down, to literally put that letter in a box and hope that no one ever reads it again, or, you know, to burn stuff or to, you know, kill people at the end of the day, like hasn't stopped fights for justice hasn't stopped these ideas from living. And so part of that gives me hope, like they haven't stamped it out yet either. So, yeah. yeah. And know. actually one, so a good example of that to loop it back to, to Lucretia um, is that a, a big part of her, her like daily or her day to day, like her, her action aside from giving speeches um, is that she was really committed to boycotting cotton um, hmm. and any other um products that were the product, um, you know, that w- were picked or made by slave labor. And there was a really big movement in, within the white abolitionist and white Quaker movement too. Um, and there's actually a name for it that I'm totally blanking on. There was like a phrase. Um, I mean, so they were basically doing like a, a boycott, um, mm-hmm. you know, back then. And, and so cotton was a big thing. And there were a lot of merchants, like Quaker merchants who owned businesses and they wouldn't stock any cotton products um, and anything else. If sometimes it was sugar or tobacco um, that was coming from um, coming from um, slave labor and they wouldn't stock that they wouldn't sell it. And in fact, her husband, um, Mr. Mr. Mott, <laughs> Mr. Mott, when she met him, he, worked in wool and cotton like he had a mill and she convinced she basically like was hardcore and convinced him to stop cotton and just do wool um because it was um you know that 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 was like the ethical product so she's someone who like when Mm. you read about her she's just like so intensely consistent in her ethics and her convictions like all along um Mm. and so that, I mean, I, that, that was really interesting to me when I read that, because sometimes mm-hmm. I think when we learn about the abolitionist movement, it does start to seem like a, it was like one big speaking tour, like it was giving yeah. these speeches and writing these pamphlets. And so I love hearing about these day-to-day um, kind of forms of activism, whether it was, you know, being part of the Underground Road, Railroad and other networks, or just like this daily commitment to like, we're not going to have cotton. We're just going to wear this itchy ass wool <laughs> <laughs> every day. Um, but like, to me, one of the most, I, one of the most imp- interesting things to me about Lucretia Mott um, that surprised me when I was doing research on her um, years ago. Um, so she's often really connected to the Seneca Falls and the Declaration mm-hmm. of Sentiments um, in, in 1848. And, and, and it's true that she was there and she was kind of one of the main reasons that it happened when it did and why mm-hmm. it did. Um, so you guys have probably maybe covered some of that, like the World mm-hmm. Slavery, like, so she was there oh, at the World yeah, Slavery yeah. Convention in London. She was a delegate. And so she was one of the women who wasn't allowed to like be on the floor. Um, and she was there with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and they took the walk together and said, we should have a convention. Um, and then Elizabeth Cady Stanton really was one of the people that organized it and she organized it and booked it 
because Lucretia Mott was going to be in town. Um, Mm. Lucretia Mott was on one of her speaking tours and she had been like out of prison. And then she'd been with like the, like in like a native American community. And so then they, they planned it so that she would be the main speaker. So she was like the keynote speaker there. Um, And what is really interesting to me is that when they were going over all of the different declarations, like all of the kind of um, points in the declaration of sentiments, um, Mm -hmm. the one that she objected to was um, suffrage actually, and was the Mm -hmm. right to vote. And it wasn't because she didn't think women should have the right to vote. um, But her stance at the time was that she didn't even fuck with electoral politics because she (sighs) felt like to even to vote, like for her, like the institution, America was so bound up with the institution of slavery and the evils of slavery that to participate in any way in the system was to be complicit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is such a radical stance. And it's interesting because she gets totally lumped in with suffrage and she did eventually change her mind and worked for women's suffrage, but her initial stance was like, no, like, um, and, and she wasn't, and she was very clear, of course, cause she's actually really nuanced, which is hard for us sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that ideas can be complex. So she wasn't actually opposed to women voting. She felt that if there's going to be, you know, a, a, the, the electoral franchise, yes, certainly men and women should do it, but it wasn't going to be her fight. Um, right. because it just like to her, even, you know, voting was, you know, it was immoral because it was a kind of participation. Yeah. I think that's like where a lot of um, looking more into this, a lot of where white feminism misses the boat many times on various different subjects. Like even when we're learning now about eugenics and, you know, as white feminists, a lot of us have been very involved in reproductive rights and, you know, letting every woman have access to birth control and safe and effective methods for that. Um, And then we get all in a huff when there are people who don't support that or people who are, you know, against those means without looking into the nuance of why they are and the history of why they might be like against the birth control movement, against abortions, because so much of it in history was used in negative ways, too. And so, yeah, it gives it does give more context to that, because I remember um learning about Lucretia Mott when we were doing suffrage and that she objected to that and wondering like, what the hell? (laughs) Well, there's a good answer. Yeah. There's a good answer for what the hell. (laughs) Well, I'm wondering too, it makes me think about both abolition and suffrage when we've been learning about it is that, that you poke at it a little bit and it does start to lose its luster, especially abolition. I think that there are a lot of abolitionists who were against slavery, but not pro black people or yeah. they they weren't anti-racist you know they mm-hmm. were just anti-slavery that and i think for modern people it's easy to conflate those as the same thing or mm-hmm. um like being pro suffrage meant being pro all women or pro and it's like not really you know there was a lot of elitism and classism and gross xenophobia and racism so i i'm it sounds like from what you're saying that the abolition she was a part of was the more like radical anti-racist abolition versus the like pro segregation or pro, you know, all of Mm -hmm. these, I don't know, black codes or like back to Africa movement or whatever might be there that, that abolitionists might've debated about. Sure. And I think that there's definitely like a way in which a lot, what you're talking about, there's, there was a lot of like paternalism um, and like condescension, right? There was still, there was still white supremacy in the abolitionist, you know, that it was about Mm -hmm. having pity, you know, on this lesser Mm -hmm. people, like, um, and from, 
from everything I've read of hers, like that, that was not her stance. Um, she also, so I, I skipped ahead to Seneca Falls, but um, what's, you know, other things that I think are notable about her is um, she was a co-founder of the um, Philadelphia, Philadelphia Anti-Slavery Society. There's like so many. No, it was this. It was the like the Philadelphia Women's Anti-Slavery Society. It basically was an interracial. It was founded um with her, she founded it with other white women and other black women, free black mm-hmm. women in Philadelphia, and it was the first interracial um co-ed anti-slavery society. So is this the one? Then, did they have a meeting where the like a mob burned the building down? Mandy, do you remember that one? Because mm-hmm. I remember yeah, thinking yeah. like this moment is so badass, and look at the solidarity, yeah. like that's beautiful. And then it kind of like, you know, yeah, because even like the earliest like William Lloyd Garrison, who was one of the kind of leading you know white Quaker abolitionists, even his organization was just men, right? Because it was still seen back then as like you know it was this one of her heresies was that she spoke to mixed audiences of men and women. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, the Philadelphia female anti-slavery society, I think I'm getting that right. Um, mm-hmm. And that, yeah, she co-founded that. And it's one of the organizations that really um, inspired and a lot of other early um, abolitionist women were part of um, um, and like a lot of really interesting early families like the um, like the Grim the Grimke sisters mm-hmm. um, and all the Grimkeys um, and the Fortes was um, or Fortens oh my god I don't know how all my stuff in front of me um, but another another kind of a family that was really active um, um, in, in the movement and uh, so there's and they had a lot of conventions that were you know for the time pretty interracial um, um, and, and again, pretty radical because it was, um, it was, there were, there were women involved and yeah, a mob definitely came, mobs came to her house. They, they came for her on, on numerous occasions. What I think is crazy about thinking about that too, is that I remember, I think reading in a blurb, like she had six children. Right. And so like, when you think of, you know, the work that you're involved in and your life being threatened and mobs coming to your houses, which I'm sure were not the same as the houses we live in today with like our nest cameras and our security <laughs> systems and whatever that we have everywhere. And you're doing this work, but you're also doing it with six kids at home who are also put in that line of fire. And like, as mm-hmm. a mom thinking about that mm-hmm. too, there's something Katie and I have talked about and, you know, it would have been so interesting to be able to talk to her about mm-hmm. that or like any of her kids about their memories about that. But I think it is just more inspiring to like, I mean, I can barely keep my life together with two children. She's doing all of this <laughs> stuff with six kids is amazing. And then like, and I actually read like, um, and then five of them lived into adulthood, um, you know, mm, which is again, yeah. statistically, you know, that's pretty remarkable. So yes. Um, did all that, giving all these speeches, traveling to London as this delegate, um, you know, for the world slavery, anti-slavery convention. And yes, six, six children. Do you know anything about what became of them? Because I am really curious, you know, did they resent her? Did they admire her? Did they, were they involved? Did they kind of carry on her legacy? That is a great question that I don't know the answer to. And I'd Mm -hmm. love to look into that. You know, it's, it's interesting because there are these families, um, 
like I said, like the Grimke family, um, and then the Fortins, which I think I'm getting it right. There's a couple other families, um, and some, and, and the Fortins were a free black family. Um, and a lot of them kind of intermarried a lot of the Grimkeys, like there were a lot of these families who were in Philadelphia in the 1800s and were part of the abolitionist movement. Um, a lot of them really like, it was really generational. Like they really Mm. went on, like each generation was still part of the movement, but that's not, my understanding about about Lucretia Mott, I, I really mm-hmm. don't know. So that'd be mm-hmm. another, that'd be a fun rabbit hole um, to go oh, down yeah. and see, yeah. and see what, what it did and, and what kind of descendants are living today. I know that she's buried in Philadelphia. Um, you know, and I know that um, there is a, a statue of her, like her, it's like um, uh, uh, Stanton and, um, Susan B. Anthony and her is like, I think in. Oh yeah. We, the women's. It's like the women's statue. (laughs) We did did a a mini-sode on that. There's like a really bananas bonkers history about that statue. That was really fascinating. And now everything you're telling me about Lucretia, that she would just be kind of horrified to know more about it. And, and I remember the more that you're saying that, that when we were talking about the suffrage movement, and especially Susan B. Anthony's efforts to really shape the narrative and control the narrative about it, that they were trying to kind of hold Lucretia Mott up like like the mm-hmm. saint of the movement and that they would bring her out for like an anniversary event or something of Seneca Falls and that she wouldn't tow the party line. She was like, yeah, it was like one of a gazillion meetings. You know, she it, she wouldn't she wouldn't jump on board the Susan B. Anthony train, which makes me kind of like her for that reason. Yeah. I mean, you know, in everything I've read, she's, I think she was really known as a peacemaker kind of Mm. because, and I, and I like to think my, my, my narrative that I kind of put on it is that like, she was older, you know, Mm. it's kind of that generational, um, those generational differences that you get in movement work, you know, even Mm. when it's like a difference of 10, 15 years. Right. So she's like, 25 years older than Elizabeth mm. Stanton, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that makes a difference. You know, she saw mm-hmm. some totally. different shit. She had some different ways of approaching it. So she, by all accounts and my understanding, she didn't get like down and dirty and broiled and all the drama. And she was actually someone who was really trying to kind of heal and like mm. bridge the divides um, in the suffrage movement. But she wasn't mm. like, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't down in the fight. Um, and, mm-hmm. and like you said, it's true. She suffrage was one of the many causes that she was really committed to. It was not her entire crusade. It, it was, she believed in it deeply and ultimately like women more, not suffrage women's rights. Like she was deeply mm-hmm. committed to it, but she was committed to a lot of things. Um, and it was not like that being at that convention was not like the biggest thing she did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, well, what are the other, I mean, you've mentioned prison. I, I want to know more about that and her work with native Americans, like beyond mm-hmm. abolition and women's rights or women's suffrage. What were some of those other movements she was a part of? She dabbled a little in the temperance movement, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, and, and just kind of, I think general, like, yeah, the progressive causes of the day. And she was, um, you know, talking I mean for her like it was this idea of like human equality and like human dignity like it was you know it was again really with uh with Native Americans um and you know she 
she also, I mean, I was reading, like, she did kind of get involved. Their house was a stop on the Underground Railroad, like, after the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, and mm. she did, But even before that, she was known, um, actually, now I'm thinking about, I did read something. One of her children did write. This is where, like, all of the, re- like, research that I've done. Yeah. Really, like, <laughs> jumbles together. That's what happens every episode. But I know that one of her one of her kids had written something about like memory of growing up in the house and how there was, there were just always people there and there were a lot mm-hmm. of black people there. Like she, even, even in the progressive communities that she lived in where it was still really frowned upon to have mixed company in the house um, that she, you know, she would have these huge dinner parties and have all kinds of people there. And she had, um, yeah, she had, she was always having lots of people at her house. Mm-hmm. Um wasn't she also involved in like the founding of Swarthmore College? She was. She did yeah. that. Too. Good yeah. grief! I feel yeah. so yeah. like I can barely make three phone calls tonight. Jeez Louise! Right? Yeah. She also lived. I think she was like. I think she lived to be like eighty-five too. Wow. Um, and um, yeah, and she founded. Oh, she founded some other organizations that have you know long names that sound the same as a lot of other. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I mean, she was, and so to me, it's like, again, to go back to this idea that she didn't really write it down, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, I've always been really fascinated in those, the, like, you know, that work that Stanton and, and, um, uh, everybody did to really document it and write it down because, you know, it's like, you get it. Yeah. You get why they, they enshrine themselves in history because mm. no one, Otherwise, no one would ever know they were there. Mm-hmm. And um, but for someone as well known, I mean, she Lucretia Mott, like when she was went to London for that anti-slavery convention, she was kind of seen as like the number one white lady abolitionist in the Amer- in America. Mm-hmm. You know, she was kind of like the most famous of the speakers um, mm-hmm. and known for giving these intense, passionate speeches. Um, so she was really famous. Um, but yeah, she didn't. She did not do her her biography and she didn't, you know, leave that, la- that lasting, um, that lasting documentation of, of, of the work. This is a strange question, but I, I remember learning that Abraham Lincoln is so often played by actors, like having a very low voice, but that actually his voice was not particularly low. Um, so I'm just curious, like, do you know anything about how she was a speaker or was she like oh, no. diminutive? Was she, you know, like a fire and brimstone sort of speaker. Do you know anything about? Well, I think Carol Faulkner, who wrote the biography of her, definitely kind of part of her argument is that she's like, we have this vision of her as this like quiet, obedient kind of Quaker, this, um, Mm -hmm. no, and, but that she actually wasn't, she was this really strong, like mm. intense um, person. I don't know, like, yeah, mm. I don't know what the quality of her speeches was. And that's like part of what we don't get to record, right? We don't that's know what she sounded like. There's no, there's no yeah. footage, there's no audio of her giving these speeches. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's like what there is, you know, there are lots of, um, there were lots of published reactions to her speeches, you know, so it would be like, she'd give a speech and then a week later there would be an article that would be like, you know, and then Miss Mott gave a speech and the entire audience was roused to their feet. <laughs> <laughs> she would get glowing reviews in the, in the abolitionist papers, you know, um, but, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what she sounded like. You know, mm-hmm. there's only a few photos, like some old daguerreotypes and she looks like you're, your basic 
super severe <laughs> white woman in an itchy bonnet. Um, and she, I mean, she was known for like her consistently plain Quaker appearance. So mm-hmm. that's maybe more of what's caught. Many people will write about how amazing her speech was and also her appearance that she was like always, she was never dressed up. She was always super plain wool and, um, some, some Less silk. to think about, I guess. Just you know, ethically made silk ribbons. Um, <laughs> yeah, but 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 always um, very plain, and very Quaker. Um, mm. But yeah, I don't know what kind of voice she had. That's a mm. really fun thing to think about. <laughs> she had like her hand, like you said, in so many things that were important to her, like in all these pacifist kind mm. of mm. Uh, movements as well. And then I, I did find something too, where she did actually speak a little bit um, about eugenics. Like she gave a speech to a society of medical students in like 1849, Mm -hmm. even where they were talking about biological justifications of race. And even back then she's told the, these students, I guess, to be like careful how much they were sanctioning a system that would degrade so many human beings. It's just crazy. Like, to think of how much she was really involved in all of these different mm-hmm. and, different movements. And I think that that it's a good reminder to us because we still, I think we still are really guilty of siloing progressive mm-hmm. movements, mm-hmm. right? You know, like we still struggle to see that the movement for black lives is connected to climate change, which is connected Mm -hmm. to like indigenous rights and land back movements, which is connected to, you know, other things. And, and Mm -hmm. that's still something that we have a hard time like wrapping our heads around Mm -hmm. and good reminder that that's like the, 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 you know, the work for justice and for liberation of all people has been connected um, you know, forever, and that there mm-hmm. have been people who who see that. So the idea that she's just this women's rights person, or she's just an abolitionist, it's like I feel like she'd be like, no, like stop that, mm-hmm. yeah. fuck, like I care about everybody, like I want all people to be liberated, and like you know, at the time, the main groups of people that were profoundly not liberated mm-hmm. in, in America were black people, were native americans and were women and so that was mm-hmm. like the focus of her work but she was pretty down for the liberation of, of, of all beings mm. did did she have really um outspoken critics or any like particularly famous nemesis mm-hmm. is probably too strong of a word but i'm that's a good question you know i, I my she's she strikes me as someone who like managed to be as intense and like outspoken and prominent as she was, but like didn't seem to ruffle too many really famous feathers. I'm sure there were some within her, mm. you know, movements, but she was very close with Frederick Douglass. She was very close with William Lloyd Garrison. She, I mean, she talked shit about Abraham Lincoln, but like, I don't know if he ever said anything. <laughs> about um, what did she you know, say about Lincoln? That's kind of amazing. Oh, I think, what did he say? That he was, um, oh, he was like a weak compromiser or something about his, mm. like, you know, yeah, she basically was not giving him his flowers. She was mm-hmm. very critical of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, she, I mean, she definitely angered the you know the people that the mobs that came to try to. Well, sure, right, right. Yeah. No. yeah. <sighs> How did yeah. she end up passing away? And did I'm also curious about her marriage. So I guess I have questions about how things wrapped up <laughs> for her, but also like, how, what a fascinating marriage they must have had. 
Yeah. I mean, um, he, you know, he was also, um, you know, also involved in the, in the movement, you know, for all, yeah, as far as I know, he was, he was pretty all right. Um, I mean, I, yeah, she lived to be 85, which is mm. pretty sweet for someone, um, who lived at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she died of pneumonia. Mm. What is it too? So not, mm. not an uncommon thing of elderly people, especially in that time period to uh-huh. die from, I guess, but. Were they yeah. well off? You said he had a, a factory or like a mill. Were they wealthy? No, they weren't. And this is where I'm like trying to remember everything I read in the book about her. I actually knew that they did have some money trouble. Um, and so mm. sometimes I think like, uh, yeah, this is where I'd have to Google more, but I don't, they were not <laughs> particularly wealthy. Um, and I don't think that he was particularly successful. Um, and I think that like his not using cotton was part yeah. of that, like um, the kind of insistence on just wool, like he could have definitely made um, more money. I mean, she yeah. definitely didn't come from money. Um, I think they lived a pretty austere um, you know, kind of, kind of life. Um, but I think that there was money trouble in the family. Hmm. and i'm like i think yeah i think there's a chapter there's something in the story of her about like her going to london for that convention and money trouble that was happening with them but um i don't remember and i'm i actually tried to find the book before we started and uh, i looked i mean the biographies usually get pretty detailed too so it's easy to get lost in the weeds sometimes with some of that um we're kind of bouncing all over her life but i guess another question i have is how because she didn't come from a well-to-do family how did she kind of get on the circuit or like get on the scene get noticed do you know how she kind of rose to public prominence you know i think that she i think it's from like she was in really good standing in her, in like the Quaker scene that was again, really, and she was a follower. She was, um, wait, I am going to look at this because <laughs> I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, there was a particular kind of part of the Quakers that she was with that kind of, um, there was a split in her community. Um, and she went with a more secular not secular, but like a less strict, less orthodox um, split. They followed a guy. Um, oh my God. What was his name? I'm going to just guess Oliver Crosby. Something that sounds very like 17. Somebody something. Um, <laughs> he, yeah. I can't remember. Um, they were. Yeah. So, I mean, her parents. Um, oh, her cousin was Benjamin Franklin. Like like her, you know, like old, old American colonialist family. Um, Mm -hmm. But but they were, they split from the, they, they followed this particular guy who was a less strict biblical interpretation Mm -hmm. and a little bit more open um, kind of free um, thinking um, kind of Quaker movement mm-hmm. at that time. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that was, that was really influential on her as well. And I was also reading that she, 
um, at a number of times she spoke and kind of gave sermons um, at Unitarian churches. Oh. So she was not just like only at Quaker meeting houses. She would go um, and kind of speak elsewhere. But I think that because she was part of this group of people that followed this mm. one guy, that's where a lot of people in the abolitionist movement and who were Quakers were really working. And so I think that she mm. connected early with people like William Lloyd Garrison and these other kind of prominent um, Quaker activists um, and started giving her speeches um, and kind of getting known as this really um, great speaker and kind of rising. Um, and, oh, aha, Elias Hicks. Oh my gosh. Mm. Elias was my second choice name. Yeah. <laughs> I was close. <laughs> um, and, oh yes. Yeah, so she, hmm. aha, wait, let's, huh. um, Free produce movement. That's the phrase I was trying to find in my brain earlier, which was the boycott of goods produced by slave labor. So it was called free produce. That's the actual movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was all rooted in like a, it's like a very Quaker nonviolent tradition. And she was also, that's another thing about her is she was like really deeply committed to nonviolence. That was a big yeah. part of her about of her kind of ethical stance. And in fact, I was mm-hmm. reading about um, there was a a, a midwestern um, anti slavery activist who um, who had a printing press. I think he was in Illinois, and he was killed by like an angry mob. Mm-hmm. Um, and his printing press had been attacked multiple times by these angry mobs. And when they came for him the fourth time, he actually used weapons. I think he had a gun, mm-hmm. and he tried to fight back um, and then he was killed by this mob and his death was a really big shock to the abolitionist movement. But, but Lucretia Mott and others in her community, they, they wrote about it and you know how, what a, what a tragedy it was and they were all shocked, but they still kind of spoke out against his use of, of Mm. arms to defend himself. It was like a very deep, but she also would speak about, you know, this idea that her, her commitment to nonviolence and not taking up arms was not about passivity, right? Which oh, is, sure. Echoes this kind of like King Gandhi kind of like this is not about being weak, but this this is mm-hmm. a, this is a kind of a form of strength um, in the face of injustice. Hmm. Hmm. There just are so many echoes to today. I mean, we haven't talked to you for a few months, and just thinking about like what's happening at school boards across the country and the kinds of panic and freak out over what is, you know, what, what is taught in schools or what is on the news or whatever. And, and it, it does seem, maybe now I'm feeling a little glasses half empty a little bit like, <laughs> oh, those mobs, they just haven't left, you know, that there are still people who are willing to go to pretty extreme lengths to protect these systems. Mm-hmm. So it, I mean, it does kind of make me wonder about if she were to be able to teleport here. It sounds like she wouldn't be all over social media, given that she wasn't really big on, you know, documenting herself. She wouldn't be like tweeting, live tweeting stuff. I feel really strong. Like, and that's so funny to think of, because don't you feel like, like Elizabeth Katie Stan would have had like such like a million Instagram followers. Oh my God. No (laughs) doubt. Yes. She would just be like, you know, brand it. She like, would um, have branded it. <laughs> no. That's funny. No, it's, I mean, it's true, Katie. Like it's, you know, the groundhog day effect of like, of, of this, of this stuff is, is, can be paralyzing. It can be demoralizing. Um, 
you know, and it's, yeah, like, oh, wow, we've been here. Yeah. Like those mobs and those school boards, they're the same mobs. They are the same kind of mobs of people that burned down the the meeting house where she was giving speeches. It's the same shit, you know, same shit, different century. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always been the people who, you know, were resisting it. And that's kind of. And me. really, mm-hmm. like, we have made so much progress since then as a society in general, like it's moved, like the, the needle has moved significantly from where it was in her time. So I guess that's a little glimmer of hope too, is that those small changes and continued involvement and stuff can still make a difference. So it just, Mm. it's just painstakingly slow and And not guaranteed. I mean, it's, I think Mandy and I talk about this all the time that a victory one is only a partial victory. You know, it's, it's never set in stone that, Oh, great. Now we have these rights, you know, that there are always people working to roll them back or to undermine them. And so just how vigilant anyone committed to, justice has to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm thinking of just like Lucretia moments in my life or ways to challenge myself to Mm. bring some Lucretia to a moment. And I, I love hearing stories about her scratchy wool and just her like bullshit meter seemed to have been very finely tuned to just not, I mean, heresy is a great way to say it, to just not buy into the very seductive narratives like, Oh, just buy the cotton because it's already been made and, you know, you not buying it really isn't going to have much of a difference. And, you know, I can hear all the excuses in my mind of like Mandy and I talked about um, slavery free chocolate, you know, and then it's like, okay, now we know. And so now I have to think about like, okay, am I going to buy this product that I'm not sure where that chocolate comes from or, you know, just those. And then you can feel yourself trying to talk yourself out of making the harder choice or, taking the higher road, I, you know, like, well, it's here. It's already, there's just a million excuses you can give yourself. So that's maybe something I'm taking away is like a mot moment would say, nope. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. And, and I think, you know, that she also, um, oh, I like that a mot moment. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, too, I, to me, like, like I said, one of the, she is, she is a, a reminder and I think that's sometimes when I think about this idea of heroes, you know, or yeah. like these people we look to, um, it's not that like everything she did was perfect. Um, mm-hmm. no, or that like, like she's just, she was an absolute perfect model for this. I think that the other way to frame it is that these people are there to remind us of certain things, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think again, she reminds us that nuance is okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I like, again, I think if you think about right now, now there's so much you know everything is like it's this way or it's that way and like if you there's it's it's hard so this idea Mm -hmm. that she actually didn't support suffrage like what but like Mm -hmm. oh she had this actual really like deep like ethical stance and then she actually did shift on it and she worked through it and she wrote about it Mm -hmm. so that's 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 a really healthy reminder that that's okay you know um and, and actually that's smart, smart way to go about, you know, um, kind of putting together your, 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 your ethical stance and what you want to fight for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, she's also a great reminder of avoiding the silo effect and how we think about a movement work. Um, and that, you know, she's someone who had her hand and her foot and her mouth and a lot of different causes because to her, they were all connected. Um, and that's like, we don't have to just choose one or the other. 
Um, and we, we can see these liberatory fights as all very connected. Mm. That's really great. Yeah. I'm glad we learned more about it. And now I just want to go and look more into her personal life. And I want to go learn more about Quakers and what are they up to today? And I, would go, like, and I want to have a third kid and name them Lucretia. Nope. nope, not that no, one, I, do not. Sorry. <laughs> well, I think it's really fun to like start to learn about, like, you know, I, I do really like the kind of like uh, following a million links in the rabbit hole of Wikipedia yes. because yeah. there's all these really cool people that you just, you don't, learn about that much you know and they'll be like oh she was invited to speak at this meeting by so-and-so and i'm like what i've never heard of her click oh wow now i'm gonna mm-hmm. learn about her and there was just a lot you know that's the other thing she's a reminder that there was these huge connected webs of of activists and people who you know did amazing work but didn't necessarily become famous mm-hmm. for sure well so speaking of amazing work what else are you working on right now that you want to tell people about oh well i um I'm very close to being finished with um, the book that I have co-written with um, W. Kamau Bell, um, who's a comedian and the host of a wonderful show on CNN called United Shades of America. And we wrote a book called Do the Work, an Anti-Racist Activity Book. So it's an anti-racist activity book for adults um, who uh, need to or want to have a book filled with ideas for what you can actually do when you're feeling like the world is terrible and you don't know what to do. Uh, and it's a conversation between the two of us just talking. Um, we're pretty funny. He's funny. I'm less funny. Um, I try to be funny. Um, we talk about white supremacy and race and racism and how to be less shitty and racist. And um, there's activities, there's crossword puzzles and lift the flaps. And <laughs> it's got, you know, word searches and word scrambles and hidden pictures and, and quizzes and a lot of a lot of history because I co-wrote it so I'm like a history teacher and it's um yeah I mean, it's meant to be it comes out in the spring of 2022 right okay. yeah, yeah. The year that comes after this one yeah. it's out next spring and you know one of our ideas with it is that it's kind of meant to be the companion to all of the really important, serious kind of anti-racist and history books that people um, bought in a frenzy last summer mm-hmm. and are hopefully still reading. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe didn't finish. Maybe they did finish, but they're like, oh, now what? what do I do? So, mm-hmm. so we made that book. That's and, great. Um, what com- And then we're actually doing a, um, a family friendly version of it, a kid version of it. Uh, because mm. We swear a lot in it. (laughs) That's exciting though. I love that because I think a lot about like what I can actually do with my kids. Like my kids Mm -hmm. hear me talking and doing this podcast and talking on the phone and listening to other people's podcasts and they ask questions. So I know that they're like picking up on parts of it, but Mm -hmm. I still really want to get them like more involved, like have them be part of it. So that's exciting to hear. I thought, yeah, it's great when we when there are ways to pre-order and buy and all of that, we will definitely put that up too for everybody to get on the board. There will be yeah. those soon. And you know what I want to say, I'd say never under- underestimate how important 
just that is what you said, the, 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 your, the experience of your kids hearing you talk and have these conversations and mm-hmm. listening to podcasts. I think so much of the, of the experience for kids is that osmosis, that yeah. what they absorb in the house. And I think we often, I mean, it is important to get them involved and show them what to do, but um, I think what they actually grow up around and what the parents are talking about and listening to and what art is on the walls and what books yeah. are in the bookshelves and just around like so much of their learning is what they're just absorbing from home yeah. and, um, and hearing the parents talk about. And it's, you know, to go back to this, um, what mm. Lucretia's kids were like, I, mm. in a lot of my research about different women, I've written about, I will read accounts that their children or grandchildren write about their memories of them. And so mm. often it's about um, like, yeah, what they saw them do, what they heard them talk about and like who was in the home. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, like Yuri Kochiyama's kids have all yep. talked about, you know, they just remember her kitchen was always, the walls were covered in flyers and posters for different movements. And there were always just people in the kitchen, like planning, you know, and it's like the kids probably were just, you know, goofing off eating yeah, snacks, mm-hmm. running around, not necessarily like strategizing like Puerto Rican independence, but they, they remember mm-hmm. that happening. So there's yeah. a, a former doc student of mine, Madison DeShay Duncan, who did her dissertation on generations, the generations of women in her family who were all activists, but black women who were just a really incredible activists in very, very different ways. And that when she started to think about womanism and, um, uh, you know, black feminism, that she would was like kind of blown away reflecting on her own time being at her grandma's kitchen table and her, her aunts all gathered around and just what was like taken for granted and what was normal Mm -hmm. and what was typical. And that it isn't maybe until you get a little removed from that or a little distance that you realize how special that was or how, how much that shaped how you saw the world, how you thought about the world. And so I, I love that idea of the power of the, the kitchen table or the power of the home being a place where, you know, our young people, our kids are connected to those movements in the world. I will say that this last year has been really frustrating because when I imagined having kids and the kinds of things I would do with them, we were so restricted, you know, and the kinds of activism, the kinds of events I would go to the, you know, the places I want them to go, we weren't going anywhere. We weren't doing anything. So just trying to, as we're coming out of it a little bit, trying to just be super intentional that what their daily routine is, doesn't lie. Like our daily routine reflects our values. And I want to be really careful and thoughtful about what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say one of my parenting hacks uh, on this (laughs) is that, uh, you know, but again, on the topic of like letting kids kind of absorb what's around them, one of my strategies is that I put books that I really want them to read in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm always doing kind of like, you know, political graphic novels or like historical yeah. things, you know, yeah. like, put them in the bathroom is bathroom reading. And I, you know, my kids are old, my kids are 12 and eight. And, and like, especially my 12 year old, like if I go and give her a book, I'm like, this is a really important book. You need to read it. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I'll roll her eyes. Like, yeah. Like, Flip it on the bathroom, like on top of Dog Man and all those other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my son, I'll walk in. My son's been like reading like a Bruce Lee graphic novel and like a like they read like the John Lewis March books mm-hmm. in the bathroom. Yeah. 
Awesome. <laughs> learning, learning strategies from Kate. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. That's well, we're great. so glad that you could come back on with us. Yeah. Again. This is yeah. great. Thank you oh, for I'm taking your time. To- now, like I said, there's not too many more episodes because unfortunately there's not a lot of, no, but <laughs> there are a lot of like, of interesting, interesting stories. And, and again, these white women who remind us that like, yeah, you know, not all of them sucked. Most of them. Yes. But some of them, um, them. saw through it and um, yeah. they can be our models. Well, as a little teaser, I know that the next kind of chapter that we're moving towards has to do with learning about the uh, women involved in massive resistance and the Klan. Mm-hmm. And I know that you have a couple of favorite white women who were really um, not like the antithesis of that uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. Yeah, so maybe that's going to be a good next next time that we talk to you. That sounds great. Yay. Well, good luck with everything and good to talk to everybody. Good to see you. you. Thank you. Thanks for continuing to do this excellent work as um, (laughs) challenging as it is to slog through all these horrible histories. It's really critical. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.